This is from uh, the book of Colossians, chapter 3, verses 5 to 11. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you've taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Jeannie. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, guide us now into this uh, good truth. Um, Help us, even as we look at uh, the things that we're called here to put off, uh, which is our sin and uh, the misdeeds of our flesh, uh, Lord, may we keep, uh, if we have an eye on that, maybe we keep one eye on you and your love. Uh, it's only safe to look at that stuff with you. And so uh, thank you that we don't have to be afraid to look at it. Um, uh, set us free from walking uh, in the life we once lived and into this new life in you. Uh, we ask this in your name. Amen. Have a seat. So we're transitioning in the book of Colossians. Um, The first two chapters, really, and up into the first part of chapter 3, Paul has has mostly been talking about the truth of who Christ is, um, really holding up Christ. Colossians is probably the most uh, Christological book in the entire Bible, but certainly in the New Testament. Holding up the truth of who Christ is, and consequently, what's happened for us in Christ. But Paul um, is not just waxing uh, theological or theor- theoretical. He's saying, all this is really true, but I want this to get very practical for us. And so the rest of the book, in many ways, is Paul working out practically what are the practices or what are the implications of living in this new identity that we have in Christ. The fact that, if you remember a few weeks ago, we belong, Randy talked about that, right? Right? My, my belonging is secure. Uh, it's secure because of what he's done. I can't do anything to add to that. I can't even do anything to lose that. But what does it look like to actually live in that? And what's the fruit of that, especially in your relationships to yourself and to one another and to the world around you? Because you were made, I was made, it says there, renewed in the image of the Creator. I was made to bear a certain image, the image of God, and to reflect Him on earth as it is in heaven, right, with one another. And so what does it look like to live in this new identity, in this new family, to literally bring the life of heaven down into my daily life here on earth, okay? So there are three things that I think um, he encourages us to do, stuff that we can do now uh, as a result uh, of what's happened for us in this new identity. So uh, I've got three words, uh, weeding, uh, watering, and then enlarged garden. If you, uh, if you like agrarian terms, those will be very soft to you. Uh, if you don't, weeding is putting to death, okay? Watering, uh, coming to life. And then enlarged garden, this new family 
that we have. So weeding, watering, and in a large garden. The very beginning of this, he says in verse 5, I, I, want, you to, I want you to weed Weed your garden. And he says there, I want you to put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. I want you to put to death these things. Now, that's, that's serious language. It, it's, it's literally... Um, I want you to execute these things at all costs. The word there in the original language, uh, or some of the translators, we've stopped translating this because we, we, in our English, we use this word differently. It's the word mortify. I want you to mortify these things. And in our, in our modern uh, verbiage, mortify means uh, like I'm mortified, right? Which means to be embarrassed about something. And even the way we use that word mortify, if I'm embarrassed about something, then oftentimes what I do, what I'm embarrassed about, I hide, right? And what I hide in many ways keeps it from other people, it keeps it out of the light. And really what Paul is saying here is, is, is when you hide, you actually keep that thing alive. So our use of the word mortify doesn't help us. What they meant when he says mortify, it's literally don't hide this stuff. Don't be embarrassed about your sin. Bring it out and kill it. Put it to death. That's why James says to us, confess your sins to one another. And healing is the product of that. What is that? It's, it's bringing it out, not being embarrassed, but saying this is what's true. This is what I've done, okay? John Owen wrote a book a long time ago called On the Mortification of Sin. If you want to read a very dense hard-to-read book uh, with a lot of old English, but it's a very good book. And he says this, his famous quote out of there, that book is, put sin to death or it will be putting you to death. You're going to do one of two things. Either you're going to put your sin to death or it's going to put you to death. So Paul is calling him here. He's saying, he's saying I, I want you to put this stuff to death in your life. The real, the real language there is, is consider yourself dead to these things. You remember, um, you seen uh, Godfather before? I think it was Godfather. When Michael Corleone says to Fredo, uh, literally, you're dead, you're dead to me. You remember, remember the quote, what he says? He says, Fredo, because Fredo had done what? He had, he had betrayed the family and he had broken the relationship. And that's what sin does, right? Sin is a, is a deceitful thing. It makes promises that it can't keep, and then it destroys relationships. Sin is the destruction of ourselves as well as the destruction of our relationships. And what did Michael Corleone say to him from his very righteous place, <laughs> right? We'll get into that here in a second. He says, Fredo, you're nothing to me now. You're not a brother. You're not a friend. I don't want to know you or what you do. I don't want to see you at the hotels. I don't want you near my house. When you see our mother, I want to know a day in advance so I won't be there. You understand? What's he doing? He, he's putting to death that relationship. 
He's driving a stake into Fredo's heart and saying, you're dead to me. It's a sad picture, but it's a powerful picture for our purposes this morning of what does it mean to put to death? Because what Paul is doing, he's, he's actually teaching us what he, what he was saying last week when he says, set your mind on things above, set your heart on things above, not on earthly things. He's, he's talking to us about what it means to set our heart and our minds on those things rather than on these things. And he's saying, these are some of the things that your heart can get set on. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed. Sexual immorality. It's the word, uh, the Greek word is the word porneia. It's where we get the word for pornography, right? And what is that? It's an expression of sex, which is something that God created and God has given us and God has said is good. It's an expression of that that has gone completely outside of the boundaries and the design for which God has made it. Impurity, it's immoral, any sort of immoral behavior. Lust, which is the word epithemia. You've heard, if you've been here anytime, you've heard me already teach on this, that it means an over-desire for something good, right? doesn't mean that I desire, the thing that I desire is bad, like it's not bad to desire sex, but an over-desire for sex. The word lust there is literally an overmastering desire. You don't just have a desire. It has mastered you. You don't have it. It has you. You see? And greed, which we would naturally associate and attach that to money, and it can be. But greed in its very nature is just, I want what I don't have. I want more than I need. It's an unchecked, unrestrained desire. Even a desire for something that's good, but it's, it's a desire that has gone outside of its banks, right? It's like a river. It's a good thing when it's inside of its banks, but when it spills outside of its banks, it's destructive. And he lumps all of these things together, I believe, under one roof because he's trying to get us to understand something really, really important. He says, all of these things are idolatry. They all have the same root. They may be expressing themselves in a lot of different ways, in sexual sin and in anger and in malice and slander, but I'm throwing all this stuff underneath one roof and I'm saying this is really all about one thing, idolatry. And what is idolatry? It's when you have something that has functionally moved to the center of your life. It's sitting on the throne of your life functionally in the place that only God was designed to be and only God can be. When I'm practicing sexual immorality, impurity, lust, greed... Oftentimes, what, if I'm being honest with myself, when I'm honest with myself, I'm at the center. <laughs> I'm on the throne now. I'm the one interpreting and trying to fulfill my desire. Hal and I tease about this. We say, me loves me some me. All right? <laughs> Me's on the throne. So I would just encourage us to consider that the first step Man, we could do a whole weekend. I'm sure the folks who did taught on the emotional maturity uh, workshop this weekend said this. Randy referred to it as, as trying to swallow an elephant in two hours. We could talk about what does it mean to put off sin uh, for a whole seminar on this topic. 
But let me just give you like the fir- one first step, a small step, and it's this. The first step is, is call sin what the Bible calls sin. I know that sounds really oversimplistic, but it's, it's really important. Don't, don't call it a struggle. Don't call it an issue. Don't call it a tendency. Don't call it my temperament. Don't say, well, you know, I just, I, you know, I have a tendency to being angry, you know. Call what the Bible calls sin, sin. Because you can't, just like a doctor can't actually treat a problem until they know what it is, right? We have friends in this room who've had that life experience. And until a doctor knows this is what's going on, they can't actually address it. Until I call sin, sin, I can't appropriate and and participate with the resources that are mine to actually deal with it. That's one of, you know, it says there, you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, the elemental spiritual forces of the world. Paul talked about it, you know, in the last couple sermons. The basic principles of the world tend to, we don't even talk about sin anymore. We don't call sin, sin anymore. We call it all sorts of other things. We have all sorts of cultural definitions for it. We tend to elevate certain sins above others, right? And I'm not going to suggest there's certainly are a sin in our lives that bring earthly consequences and destroy relationships more than others. No doubt. But we tend to elevate certain sins above other sins, or we don't even call things sin that the Bible calls sin. And therefore, if I don't call it sin, there's no need to mortify or kill what's acceptable or not serious, right? And Paul's saying, this is serious. If this is going on in your life, it's serious. If your desire, which is ultimately for the Lord, is getting attached and expressed through things like sexual immorality or lust or, or over-righteous anger or malice or slander, it's serious. It's poisoning you. Deal with it. Put it to death. Or it's going to be putting you to death. And if I don't call it sin, then I can actually, in some weird, twisted way, I can kind of keep it around. That's no, not that big of a deal. Well, ask the person you're in relationship with if it's that big of a deal. If you're practicing sexual immorality, ask somebody who's connected to you, how big of a deal is this for you? How's it affecting you? It's probably a big deal to them. If you're practicing over-anger, or malice, or slander, or lying. It says there, be honest with one another, don't lie. If you're practicing these things, ask somebody else, how does that affect them? So the first step is calling, if I'm going to mortify, if I'm going to put to death sin, I've got to call it what it is. Which is that, and idolatry is an old word, I get it. We're like, what does that mean? Like Indiana Jones, like I got this little golden statue? And No, it's not that. He's saying anytime anything is functionally ruling or reigning your life other than the Lord, it's sitting on the throne, that's idolatry. And it's destructive. And it's not who you are now. Did you hear him saying that to us? You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you've got to rid yourself of all this stuff. Which, why? Because you've put on this new self. 
This is not who you are now. You're actually betraying your very nature. That, that stuff's not you anymore. This is you, holy, righteous, without blemish, free from accusation. That's you now. Don't put that on again. You're covering up the real you, and it's destructive. So my first encouragement, my challenge to us is if, if you're going to put to death this stuff in your life, um, you've got to stop playing around with it. Stop it at all costs, and you don't stop it because it makes you right with God, right? I don't stop these things because it makes me right with God, but because I am right with God, and it's not who I am anymore, right? I remember talking to a mentor one time about sin and about me even giving counsel to somebody about, about one of these issues. And I told, this is what I said to him, I said, and I was talking with him, and I said, you know, man, you really need to be careful here. And here's what my mentor said. He goes, why'd you tell him that? And I was like, because uh, <laughs> I thought it was good advice or good counsel. And he said, don't tell him to be careful. You're just telling him to be sneaky. He said, tell him to stop. So then I went and thought about me for a little while. <laughs> I was like, Ugh, am I being careful with my sin? You know, am I playing around with it? Kind of like, oh. You know, I've, I think I've teased about living with a tiger. People who like have these tigers as pets, right? It's like, oh, this is really great until it eats you, <laughs> right? Until it mauls and destroys your life. And then everybody goes, yeah, because that's not something you're supposed to live with. It's a tiger. I think a lot of us, that's kind of how we handle this stuff. And, and Paul's saying no. Romans 6, he says it this way. He says, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin. I want you to consider yourself dead to it, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. What's he saying there? He's saying, don't let it get back on the throne. It's not, it's not on the throne. Jesus is on the throne, but don't let it get back up there. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey. It's your master. It's ruling. It's evil desires. It's the same word for lust. It's epi-desires. It's overmastering desires. Don't offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. You hear what he's saying there? You already have that new life. And offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument for righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master. Because you're not under the law, you're under grace. He's saying sin doesn't sit on the throne anymore. You were dead to God, but you're alive to God now. This is your old self. So would you take the challenge, call sin what it is. And will we be serious about it? Take John Owen's words, do you mortify, is what he says. Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. 
If you need any more encouragement for the why, let me just say a few things about what he says there when he says, because the wrath of God is coming. That's a heavy sentence. Put to death these things. Because of these things, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. What in the world does that mean? Well, it means a lot. Um, I've struggled with knowing how to say this really simply, uh, just for our context this morning. The Scripture teaches really clearly that the wages of sin is death, right? That the wages of sin is wrath. That God is going to judge sin. And His judgment is just, and it comes from a place of, of holiness and of righteousness. And without getting to all of the theology and all of the... the I almost used the word eschatology... Does everybody know what the word eschatology means? In times, judgment day, Christ's return, where he will literally, everyone will give an account. And Romans 8 says, if you're in Christ, there is therefore no condemnation for you. There's no wrath for you. The wrath of God is coming, but the wrath of God is not coming on you because it came on his son. There's no more wrath there's no more condemnation. Yes, say amen louder. That should be an exciting moment for you right now and me. No more wrath. And that doesn't give us a free license to sin. Romans 6 talks about that. Go read Romans 6, 7, and 8. Just because there's no more wrath doesn't mean I'm just free to do whatever I want now because my new self is to do these things, to walk in his ways. But here's what I want you to think about, and it's this, is, is that... When these things are the marks of our lives, when we're walking in the old ways, it brings wrath into our lives. Even humanistically speaking, doesn't it? It brings death to our relationships. Hatred, destruction. It's a, a relational devastation when these are the marks of our lives. Like I remember when... I got caught lying. I've been caught lying many times. I remember getting caught lying in my house as a, as a child and my father talking with me about it. And it didn't change the fact that I was his son, right? It didn't change the fact that I was in their home. But he basically said, we, we can't lie because it destroys everything about our relationship. I can't trust you anymore. It creates distance. It creates space. It literally, um, I would go so far as to say this, it brings hell on earth. Like in Matthew, where Jesus says, hey, if your right eye is causing you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand's causing you to sin, cut it off. Now, he was not actually encouraging people to cut off their hands and gouge out their eyes because he knew that the eye and the hand were simply following where the heart and the mind were set. But what he was saying was, and he says, do this stuff because if you don't, your whole self, what's he say? Read the, should probably just read what he said, right? It's better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. 
He's not just talking about the possibility of eternal damnation. He's talking about literally it throws our lives into hell. It creates distance. It's wrath. It's hard. It's hard to be in a relationship when there's wrath, isn't there? Jesus is saying, I have no more wrath for you. But your sin, when you walk in these old ways, even though I don't have wrath for you, oftentimes it creates a distance from you experiencing my love for you, my relationship with you. So put it to death. How do we do that? Oof, I need to hurry. We'll talk more about this next week because uh, this is kind of a two-part sermon. Um, but it says there, and this is the watering, so that was weeding. Now we're into watering. It says there in the passage, rid yourself of all this stuff and have put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator. So just like I gave us an an initial first step, I'm going to give us an initial first step. What does it mean? How do we begin to put this stuff to death? And it's connected with this idea of what does it mean to be renewed in the image of my creator? What does it mean that I've put on this new self being renewed in the knowledge and the image of my creator? If you remember last week, we talked about in 2 Corinthians 3 that as we contemplate him and we contemplate his glory, we actually are transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, right? The picture he's painting there is, is that as I look to him, so I have to be willing to bring all of this stuff to him. And as I look to him, I'm actually renewed I re-experience this newness. I'm renewed. I'm re-upped in my image as I look to him and I bring this to him, as I draw close to him and draw near to him. And I can't draw near to somebody if I believe they have wrath for me, can I? I can't. I don't want to come into your presence if you have wrath. That's why it's so important that we understand there's no more wrath. There's no more condemnation. So I don't have to be afraid to be honest about my sin and come into his presence because it's only in his presence that I actually can put this stuff to death. I'm renewed in his image. Because when I'm in his presence, what do I see? I mean, we sang it at the the beginning of this service. I see your face. You're beautiful. You're beautiful. When I look at him, I see he who knew no sin, he became sin for us. He was not doing what we're talking about this morning, which all these sins put me at the center and my self-fulfillment at the center. He was self-forgetful. He was self-sacrificial. When I come into his presence, I don't see wrath. I see beauty. I see love. I see grace. I see mercy. And I would ask you this, sons and daughters, is he beautiful to you? Yes. If he's not beautiful to you, if coming into his presence isn't an experience of beauty, then it's possible that you have a very, very low view of sin. And therefore, a very, very low view of his love. If you've been to our membership class, we talk about 
that growing in the gospel is like growing in my understanding of sin, and simultaneously I grow in my understanding of his grace and his love. The cross gets bigger, right? His beauty to me gets bigger because he tells me in Romans that it's his kindness, not his wrath, his kindness that leads me to a place of repentance. It's his kindness that leads me to a place where I can set down and put to death this stuff and say what Corleone said to Fredo, you're dead to me, you're nothing to me because this is life to me now. I can only do that in his presence. It's repentance. And repentance is not penance. That's what most people hear. That's what most Christians do. They don't do repentance. They do penance, right? Repentance is returning to relationship on his terms, not mine. Do you do repentance or do you do penance? Repentance is the work of a son and a daughter, okay? Penance is the work of an orphan. Let me just, let me just talk about repentance for a second. And I'm going to invite some friends up to share a little bit of their story. Repentance is the work of a son and a daughter. Penance is the work of an orphan. Let me just talk about the orphan. This is what orphan repentance looks like, which is shame-driven repentance, which is pride-driven repentance. (laughs) Here's what it looks like in my life. When I approach the Lord and he's got wrath for me and I'm an orphan trying to earn his favor, it looks like this. I fail and I've sinned. I can't believe I've done that which is self-wrath, right? I'm on the throne giving myself the judgment. I am something wrong. And then penance, I'm going to give myself the punishment that Christ took already. I'm going to... And then in my pride, because shame is what brought me into his place, in my pride, I'm going to recommit in the strength of myself, not in faith in him, to never do that again. And I'm good for a little bit, maybe minutes, maybe hours, maybe days. And then I fall back again, and I'm back into shame, and I'm back on the merry-go-round. And all it is is penance. I'm avoiding relationship with God while trying to be Him. I'm trying to be strong enough to deal with my sin on my own, and He never asked me to do that. That's what He came to do, right? As a son and a daughter, here's what repentance looks like. God's kindness shows me my sin. Hey, this thing, this sexual immorality, this over-desire, your over-righteous anger, this impurity or this, this deceit, it, it's actually, it's keeping us from the kind of, of union that I, I'm, I've created for us to have. I've established. You're the one with the blindfold on. I, I'm right here. You don't have to do anything to get back into my presence. So he shows me, he lifts the blindfold, he shows me my sin, he says, acknowledge it. And and it's okay, be appropriately sad, but careful. Because remember, it's my kindness that's showing this to you. And I'm showing you that space in the relationship. And so I want you to turn back for fresh grace. I want you to turn back for a fresh experience of me. I want you to remain in me 
And I want us to be restored, not that there was something broken, but it's been broken by sin. The relationship, I can't experience you. It's a block. I'm coming to God for what he can only, only do, and I come to him and he puts my sin to death, not me. This is Romans 8. It says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. By the Spirit. What is he saying there? He's saying the only thing that puts to death our sin is the Spirit of God, not our effort. And so I come to him. I can't come to him if there's wrath. I can't come to you if you have wrath. Confess your sins one to another and you will be healed. So just another just challenging moment. If you're going to water this new self and if you're going to walk in, 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 a, in real repentance, not penance, you cannot do that alone. You can't be embarrassed, mortified of your sin in, the, in, a, in our common English sense. You've got to bring it to him and you need to bring it to him in someone else. Because in isolation, our sin only multiplies. And he says, by the Spirit, we can put those things to death together. By yourself and in your, in your own flesh, you cannot. And I never asked you to. So put to death, therefore, whatever belongs. We weed. You've put on this new self, which is being renewed in the image of its creator. We water. And how do we water? We water through repentance. We bring our sin to him and to one another, and in him, we actually can, can have this stuff mortified. And lastly, I said enlarged garden. Dave and Robin Dillard, will you guys come up? I promise this is going to be a great transition, or we'll see. This is Dave and Robin Dillard, everybody. Hey, y'all clap, yeah, y'all clap for Jeannie. At the very end of this passage, he says, here there is no Jew, or sorry, no Gentile Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, but Christ is all and is in all. The picture that Paul is painting here is, is that these, these people groups, where there was division, where there was wrath, Jews and Gentiles, now there's unity because of what Christ has done. Now there's community because of what Christ has done. Where there once was discord, there's now a new relationship. Where there was factions, there's fellowship. Why? Because of what Christ has done for everyone involved, Jew and Gentile. So Dave and Robin, they're local missionaries here in Nashville. They have a, a, a mission called Servant Group. We financially, you may not know this, we financially support them. Uh, so they are, they are one of our people groups that we say, hey, you're doing stuff that we can't do, and we want to financially get behind you guys. And so I want them, we've asked them to come share a little bit of their story as well as their ministry. Um, and their ministry in many ways, um, if you, 2 Corinthians 5 says that we've been reconciled by Christ and therefore we, we become ambassadors of reconciliation. They are ambassadors of reconciliation to uh, people groups uh, in, in Nashville that I'll let them tell you about. Um, that aren't reached. And so, Thanks. Dave, Robin Dillard. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah, so um, Robin and I have been members here at Midtown or Creef Hall for two years, uh, but we raised our family here in the Creef Hall neighborhood. We've lived here for 25 years. If you know Polly and Zach and James, they belong to us. They're ours. And um, so, yeah, we've lived here a long time. And um, 
before we had children, we were in a small church, a lot like this that met in Green Hills, a little PCA church that met in a cafeteria that looked a lot like this. We had to set up chairs and tables. It was about the size of half of this section plus the worship band. So there weren't many of us. Um, but one thing we did as a church is we took on a challenge to pray uh, for a group of people in the world that didn't have a church. We thought, well, we have churches here in Tennessee, but there are people in the world who have no church, have, no, um, have never heard of Christ. So we began to pray and the Lord just led us to pray for the Kurdish people. The Kurdish people are, um, live in northern Iraq and southeastern Turkey in a corner of Syria and a corner of Iran. They're in the news a lot right now here recently. They, they pop up in the news about every five or six years. Uh, but at the time, they weren't in the news at all. We just knew that there was no church among 30 million Kurdish people, uh, no country and no church. So we as a church, we gather weekly, a couple of times a week, and just pray for them. And then uh, to our surprise, uh, the, Gulf, the first Gulf War, were any of y'all living then, first Gulf War? <laughs> okay. The first Gulf War broke out, and um, there... <laughs> okay. And the Kurds were all over the news. 24-hour news had just come out there all over the news. And, um, and to our surprise, a lot of the Kurdish refugees began to get resettled in Nashville. We actually got a phone call that said, a, a family's arriving at the airport. Would your church want to help? And we all stared at each other like, we've been praying for Kurdish people for three years, and now some are coming to the airport. And we went uh, 28 years ago this month to the airport, and we actually met at the plane. Um, many of you know Fazl. We met his family, we met his brother in particular, his older brother, and became lifelong friends with them. Um, so that's sort of what happened as our, pray our prayers led to that. But to our surprise, here 30 years later, um, we've helped start teams in Iraq and Turkey and Greece. We've, um, we've uh, been a part of starting Christian schools in Iraq that now have thousands of students enrolled in earthquake relief projects in Greece or in Turkey, um, take teams to serve in crowded refugee camps in Iraq and then work with, or in Greece, and then work with um, a lot of the refugee communities here in Nashville. So we've helped, um, to our surprise, we've helped um, Hundreds of unsuspecting people like ourselves serve in dark and, um, dark and lost places here in Nashville and beyond. Robin's going to share a little bit more about what that looks like. Yeah. So Polly is actually running the, <laughs> the slides back there. So um, Hal asked us to share with um, discipleship in mind, um, um, framing it with, within the boundaries of what does following Christ look like? How does it change you? And then how does that um, propel you out and to do his mission? And so um, Dave and I sat down last week and we thought, well, there's, there's a lot of things we can share, but what are several points that, that the Lord would, would want you guys to hear from sort of um, older people <laughs> like us? <laughs> and, and so we came up with three points because Dave is our pastor. <laughs> <laughs> so when we first started, um, w one of the things, um, we were not motivated by our feelings, which is not hard to think because we're both engineers. So feelings, you know, <laughs> that didn't motivate us. But we had a pastor who was um, discipling us in this way through prayer, and that was new for us. And um, when he called us to pray for a Muslim group, we just thought, we didn't know any Muslims. We didn't know about Muslims. They seemed scary to us. But the prayer thing didn't seem scary to us. And so as we would meet as a church and pray, we realized the Lord was changing us. Um, it wasn't our feelings at all. It, he was just moving in a way that we hadn't experienced. 
And um, as we prayed, like Dave shared, the refugees started coming. I mean, we prayed for several years, and then um, the Lord selected Nashville to be the primary resettlement area for Kurdish people. And even now, today, we have over 20,000 people here. And when we started praying, there was like five Kurdish people from the 70s that had, that had moved here. So as we um, um, started meeting with them, we sat down. And um, the second point is we, were, we engaged quickly with poor people. And it, and it pulled us out of our bubble. Like up to this point, we had our own plan. Like we were young and um, newly married we were both engineers, we had great jobs, and we had short-term plan, short plans and long-term plans. Like, we had our life planned out, pretty much. We started meeting with these broken people. All of a sudden, it's like the Lord showed up right there in the room, and, um, and, and he began to show us our weakness, which we hadn't experienced before, um, about our own. Up to that point, I think we just saw that we had a lot of strength. And we met with broken people, all of a sudden, um, they, they would share their story, and it, and, um, it opened our eyes. And um, from that point, the Lord sort of, um, we had to put our own plans to death. So when you said about putting your sin to death, it was our plan for our life that, um, that grew us out of disciple. As we moved out of our bubble, he began maturing us and, and showing us his plan for our life. And it wasn't like he didn't say, you know, you're going to be um, in Iraq next year. I'm going to move you to Iraq. It, it was just step by step, like it was a slow death. <laughs> and, and he would show us, we'd meet with the poor people here. And then several years later, we were starting teams in Iraq. And several years after that, starting schools in Iraq and then going to Greece and being with refugees. So it was just like Eugene Peterson says, Every step and arrival, it was that. It was like we took one step, and then he would show us, and then another step, and he would reveal something else. And um, when we started coming here, we thought, these guys really know how to hold their plans loosely. Like we saw a generosity in you guys that we hadn't seen in a long time. And it was a joy to sort of join you guys and use, your, use our hands and our legs together to serve Christ. And one of the stories I just want to share, I don't, need, I don't know that you guys know about this, but last year, um, Joy, Wyndham, and I um, um, were teaching English together, the very beginning level of English in town, and um, one of the ladies was really, really pregnant, and we were having a Christmas party with the refugee ladies, and um, so I, I just said, when do you do, and are you ready for the baby? And she said, no, I, I don't have anything. And she had just gotten there months before from Syria, just with, you know, one bag. And, um, and so I thought, oh, I mean, we've got to get some equipment together and try to do a baby shower. And so this is like during Christmas season. And Joy and I were like, oh, we just don't have time. And so we called the ladies in our small groups, you know, can we do this? You guys think that we could pull together a little baby shower and we could bring equipment and gifts? And you guys did it. And it's like we met just in, in a week after the um, new year, and um, we had a small baby shower with a, we really everything she needed to have a baby turned up. And um, so we thought, okay, well, that was it. That's the end. But I got a call two days later from her son, and he said, hello, miss, this is Muhammad. 
I said, hey, Muhammad. And he said, um, so my mom wanted me to call you, and, sh and she wanted you to know that um, she has no one here. And I said, <laughs> sorry. I said, I know, I know you're alone. And um, he said, she wants you to be her mom. And I said, I was blown away by the need and how she felt so loved. It was you, really you guys who loved her. And I was the recipient of her feelings. And so we started this great relationship. And she had the baby a week later. And um, so that was the third point. Hold your plans loosely because you don't know what God is going to do with, with your life. And so I want to bring up Cassie. Cassie's been involved with Servant Group for several years, um, doing a, a number of programs locally, and we just wanted her to share. I first want to say y'all are an amazing example of saying yes. I mean, that's just incredible, your story. Um, I got involved with, uh, first, the um, they do a lunch program in the summer for refugee children, and they do a little story time. Um, and I strapped Wynn on at the time she was nine months, and we went. Um, and it was a blast meeting these families who, guys, they live like five minutes that way. Um, and you would have no idea until you show up, and they're just all there. Um, we had so much fun. Then they invited me to do the walk and talk ministry, which is for women who are in the English classes. Um, they can practice their English with um, English-speaking women. And I met my friend Farah there, um, and she is, I, I don't know how old she is, probably 60s, 60s yeah. And um, Wynn and I started going weekly to visit Farah, um, and we would just go to her apartment and hang out, and uh, she quickly became part of our family. And she, um, we call her our Iranian grandmother. And um, she recently said to me, she said, you, you are like um, her, her granddaughter from Iran lives with her. But she said, you are like Nilafor to me. You are my granddaughter. And uh, I said, Farah, that's what I tell people you are to us. You're our grandmother. Um, and she, they come to our house, and they've loved our family so well. And um, I think what's so neat is it just becomes your life. It's not... It's not, it doesn't feel like I'm serving. It's, I'm sharing life with Farah, and she's sharing life with me. And, um, and it's, it's been a really neat, uh, open conversation about Jesus. She's always asking, you know, questions, and I ask questions about her faith. And, um, and we just are getting to, to do life together. Um, and it's been just a really neat, sweet um, relationship, uh, all because you guys said yes and started this ministry <laughs> Um, and Jesus is using you to reach these people in Nashville who are our neighbors. They're right here. Um, so, thank you. so I have a minute now to, um, to, sh to share just um, a few opportunities locally that we have. Um, one is just really for Midtown women. Um, to any, any of this, you can um, go to servantgroup.org and sign up if if you feel like the Lord is moving on your heart, um, we want to form a midtown sort of a baby shower crew. Response team. Response team, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so we have needs throughout the year when, when uh, women, refugee women are having babies. And, and um, so I feel like it's been a breakthrough because in Islamic tradition, you don't celebrate a baby before they're born. It's always after. And so... Um, 
we were a little apprehensive about doing these parties, but now the ladies love it, you know, because they're blessed. And so, so we do have a need for, um, you know, to celebrate babies, new babies, um, baby shower team for Midtown. And then we have a sewing program here, um, and several hundred refugee women have already gone through it. Um, there's a curriculum, and we have teachers, and um, basically it, it's teaching these women how to, the skill of sewing, and when they graduate, they, a lot of them are getting jobs from working from home sewing or hired by some of these companies that are making these weighted uh, blank blankets. And uh, so we have a need next semester for sewing teachers. And there's a curriculum that goes along with that. Um, yes, we, need, uh, we have an English program here in, in town. And we need drivers to pick up the women at 10 o'clock and to bring them to our English program. And we need childcare workers. So, um, um, two more things. We actually have a renovation pro project going on at our headquarters to expand our um, ministry area. So if anyone has skill of construction and um, want to use your hands for that, see Dave after. And then one more thing, we want to invite you to a falafel festival. Is there one? Yeah, yeah. That's, uh, it's, it's in one week, Sunday after church. Once a year, we serve falafel, and we falafel tacos, and we um, and sh we set up our tents and we share about what's going on locally. And then this year, we're doing for the first time a refugee simulation, which will um, take groups of about a dozen people at a time through a simulation process of what it would what it might feel like to to be kicked out of your country and to leave your home. And, and so we're really excited uh, to get our friends to go through that with us. So that's in one week, and we want everyone to come. Free lunch. After church. After church. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Stay, stay. I'm, we're going to pray for you. <laughs> stay, stay. Y'all uh, join me in praying uh, for these two and uh, for Cassie as well, even though you're seated out there. Reach that direction. Lord, thank you. Um, what a beautiful picture it is. I know... Um, Lord, uh, even just through their testimony, uh, Robin saying, putting to death our plans, Lord, um, so many of our, the ways we architect our lives, uh, Lord, have us at the center. And um, what a beautiful story of how you uh, graciously and gently and, and even forcefully in ways um, called Dave and Robin uh, and, and Cassie and our community into uh, a different adventure. Uh, one where our, our, our hopes and even desires for our lives are yielded to you and let you lead. And so I pray blessing, um, like severe grace on these two, uh, that you would strengthen them for uh, this unique call uh, that they have answered, that you would um, continue to open up doors, um, like Eugene Peterson said, arriving, uh, just Help them take another step uh, every day. Uh, know that you are uh, clearly with them uh, and that this is your work, uh, not their work, but that they just uh, get to participate in and see the fruit of. And so uh, convict our hearts, Lord. Lead us in the places where we, uh, whether it's with servant group or even just with our neighbor, um, need to begin uh, and, and are invited to begin to see ourselves differently as a result of what you've done for us. So we love you, uh, we trust you, and we thank you uh, for the gift that the Dillards are to our community, how the Lord is using them uh, in our lives. And we ask all this 
In your holy son's name, amen.